Welcome back, guys. It's 12.30 a.m. Now, Sunday morning, December 13th, 2020. Hope you all are well, healthy, warm, and inspired. Well, there's a rather lengthy but important article on Smithsonian. MAG.com, written by Christy Clark Puhara, P U J A R A, Associate Professor of History in the Department of Afro American Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. She is the author of Dark Work, The Business of Slavery in Rhode Island. Her current book project, Black on the Midwestern Frontier, From Slavery to Suffrage, in the Wisconsin Territory, 1725 to 1868, examines how the practice of race-based slavery, black settlement, and debates over abolition and black rights shaped white-black race race relations in the Midwest. Annalisa Cox is an historian of racism in 19th century America. She is currently a non-resident fellow at Harvard's Hutchins Center for African and African American research. She was a research associate at the Smithsonian, Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, where her original research underpinned two exhibits. Her recent book, the Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers, and the Struggle for Equality, was honored by the Smithsonian Magazine as one of the best history books of 2018. She is at work on two new book projects, including one on the African Americans who surrounded and influenced the young Abraham Lincoln. Okay, guys, like I stated, this is a, looks like a book. <laughs> the article is so long. Trying to get back to the beginning of it. 
Oh, and there's pictures included. Ruins after the 1921 Tulsa massacre. What else? Of course, there's plenty of links and photos. The article can be located online at the Smithsonian Magazine if you just put in your search engine or your browser Smithsonian S-M-I-T-H-S-O-N-I-A-N-M-A-G dot com it will bring up the Smithsonian magazine online and the article's title North erases a long history of white violence. Anti-black racism has terrorized African Americans throughout the nation's history, regardless of where in the country they lived. There's a photo here, Destruction by Fire, of Pennsylvania Hall, the new building of the Abolition Society on the night of the May 17th, 1838. in the Library of Congress the articles written by Christy Clark Pujara and Annalisa Cox dated August 27th 2020 This article was originally published on the blog for the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History as the first part of a five-part series titled, quote, Black Life in Two Pandemics, Histories of violence, close quote. John Langston was running through a neighborhood in ruins, burned homes and businesses were still smoking, their windows shattered. Langston was only 12 years old but he was determined to save his brother's lives. He had spent the night in a safe house, sheltering from the white mobs that had attacked the city's African-American neighborhood. 
sleep must have been difficult that night, especially after a cannon was repeatedly fired. The cannon had been stolen from the Federal Armory by the white mob alongside guns and bullets so they could go to war against black people. Langston awoke to worse news. The mayor had ordered all white men in the city to round up any surviving black men they found and throw them in jail. As John Langston would later write, quote, swarms of improvised police officers appeared in every quarter, armed with power and commission to arrest every man of color who could be found, end quote. As soon as Langston had heard this, he ran out the back door of the safe house to find his brothers to try to warn them. When a group of armed white men saw Langston, they shouted at him to stop. But he refused, willing to risk everything to save his brothers. There is a toxic myth that encourages white people in the North to see themselves as free from racism and erases African Americans from the pre-Civil War North where they are still being told that they don't belong. What Langston experienced was not the massacre in Tulsa Oklahoma in 1921 or Rosewood, Florida in 1923. This was Cincinnati, Ohio in 1841, 20 years before the Civil War broke out. This was the third such racist attack against African Americans in Cincinnati in 12 years. And they've included a handsome picture of Professor John Langston 
of Howard University. Continuing, Cincinnati was not alone, was not alone between 1829 and 1841 white northerners had been rising up against their most successful African-American neighbors, burning and destroying churches, businesses, schools, orphanages, meeting halls, farms, and entire communities. These were highly organized actions instigated by some of the most wealthy and most educated white citizens in the North. As a white gentleman in the pretty rural village of Canterbury, Connecticut, wrote in 1833, quote, The colored people can never rise from their menial condition in our country. They ought not to be permitted to rise here, end quote. He wrote this after white members of his community tried to burn down an elite private academy for African-American girls while the students slept, slept inside. One of the girls who survived that fire then made the long journey to Canaan, New Hampshire, where a few abolitionists were trying to establish an integrated school called the Noyes, N-O-Y-E-S, Noyes Academy. Canaan was a remote and lovely village, but within months, white locals attacked that school. The white attackers brought in numerous teams of oxen attached to a chain they put around the school and pulled it off its foundation, dragging it down the main street of Canaan. Oh, what is this? We have a video here. We'll click and see what's going on. from the Smithsonian.
voice the voice isn't playing on it oh well the audio's not working maybe it's just an advertisement continuing in 1834 there were even more riots against African Americans, most notably in New Haven, Connecticut, Philadelphia, and New York City. The mayor of New York allowed the destruction of African American homes and businesses to continue for days before finally calling out the state militia. This violence was not against buildings alone, but was accompanied by atrocities against African Americans, including rape and castration. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Shall we continue? African Americans in the North bravely continued to call for equality and the ending of slavery while the highest officials in the land try to encourage more massacres. As Lacey Ford revealed in his book, Deliver Us From Evil, President Andrew Jackson's Secretary of State John Foresight wrote a letter asking Vice President Martin Van Buren, born and raised a New Yorker, to organize, quote, a little more mob discipline, adding, the sooner you set the imps to work, the better, close quote. Mm. Mm. Does that seem to ring a bell with anyone? Whoa. We've heard that recently from Diaper Don after he was first elected uh, that was just about verbatim what he said in one of his speeches to law enforcement and we know how he's uh, he's the number one fan of Andrew Jackson. So he just basically quoted him. 
just basically quoted what he said. Continuing our, our article, the violence continued. Historian Leonard Richards makes a conservative estimate of at least 46 mobbings in northern cities between 1834 and 1837. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can't you just hear it now? Why should we have to pay reparations? This is what they say today. Why should we have to pay reparations? We never owned slaves. Continuing with the story. You guys already know. I, I'm going to bring it raw. So <laughs> if this is the first time you heard me, you might, you might want to jump off right now. Because <laughs> this is the... This is the real truth here. You don't get it watered down here. <laughs> Continuing, white leaders in Cincinnati gathered in speaking halls to encourage another attack against African Americans in that city in 1836. Ohio Congressman Robert L-Y-T-L-E Lito helped to lead one of these rallies. Hmm. As Leonard Richards noted in his book, Gentlemen of Property and Standing, the words he thundered to his audience were so vile that even the local newspapers tried to clean them up, changing words and blanking them out, printing a quote that read that the colonel urged the crowd to, quote, castrate the men and blank the women, exclamation point. Not a question mark, exclamation point, okay? But the white people in the crowd did not hear the sanitized version. They heard a demand for atrocities and soon... There was another attack against African Americans in that city. Two years later, Lito was made Major General of the Ohio Militia. In 1838, Philadelphia again saw white people organized to destroy black schools, churches, 
meeting halls, and printing presses, and then finally Pennsylvania Hall. Over 10,000 white people gathered to destroy the hall, one of the grandest in the city. Pennsylvania Hall was newly built in 1838 with public funds and was meant to be a national center for abolitionists and equal rights. Its upper floor had a beautiful auditorium that could seat 3,000 people. It had taken years of fundraising by African Americans and sympathetic white people for the hall to be built, but it took just one night for it to be destroyed. This destruction was quickly followed by violence by white Pennsylvania politicians who rewrote the state's constitution. Does that sound familiar? Oh yeah. Aren't we right now today hearing throw out the election results? Rewrite your Pennsylvania Constitution. Throw out your laws. Throw out the votes. Aren't we hearing this right now? What, are we, what do you think we're dealing with? What do you think that's really behind that? Oh, yeah. And it's not even being covered up. Okay, but I digress. Excuse my my outburst here. <laughs> okay. Oh, excluding free African Americans from the right to vote. Oh yeah. See, this is a these are these aren't new demons that we're dealing with today. These are some throwback demons from slavery. That's what we're up against today. It's getting hotter in here. It's going to get hotter. You might want to jump off now. <laughs> you might want to drunk jump off the freedom train any minute now because it's getting hotter in here. An overwhelming majority of white men in Pennsylvania enthusiastically Voted for the new Constitution. Same like today. Same like today. This physical destruction of African American neighborhoods followed by the stealing, S T E A L I N G, stealing of African Americans rights was a double-edged violence and it was not unique to Pennsylvania see it's getting hot in here it's time to jump off because you guys already know 
you guys already know when they bring this i'm gonna i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna throw my two cents in back in 1833 in canterbury connecticut the girls managed to escape their school when it was set on fire but soon all african americans in connecticut were made to suffer. White lawyers and politicians in Connecticut saw to that. A lawsuit brought against Prudence Crandall, director of the school, resulted in the highest court in Connecticut deciding that people of color enslaved or free were not citizens of the United States. Oh, we're going to see that one again. We're going to see that one again. White people could now pass any racist laws they pleased, including one making it illegal for any person of African descent to enter the state of Connecticut to be educated there. And this is no hate to any white person. As I have stated many times, if you listen to this show, my family is multi-ethnic. We have uh, ancestors all the way back in the family tree, Scottish and who knows where, where else, all the way up to, the, to today. We have a mixture of all bloodlines in our family. So this is not to point the finger at white people because, hey, white people are my people. <laughs> So are African people. <laughs> so are Native American people. And on and on and on. So no. This is not about hating anybody. This is just about. We need information. We need to be informed. We can't. No. We can't live in a. In a time like this and not have information and know what's going on around us. While the 1830s saw an intense period of this violence, white northerners had a long history of attempting to control the actions of black people they had been doing so since the colonial period when race-based slavery laws made all non-whites subjects of suspicion in 1703 the rhode island general assembly not only recognized race 
debased slavery, but criminalized all black people and American Indians when they wrote, quote, if any Negroes or Indians, either freemen, servants, or slaves, do walk in the streets of the town of Newport or any other town in this colony after nine of the clock of the night without a certificate from their masters or some English person of said family with them or some lawful excuse for the same that it shall be lawful for any person to take them up and deliver them to a constable. End quote. Northern slavery began to fall apart during the American Revolution, but the dissolution of race-based bondage was a long and protracted process, and black people were held in bondage in northern states well into the 1840s. Most northern states enacted gradual emancipation laws to legally dismantle slaveholding. However, it was actions of black people themselves. Freedom Suits, writing and publishing abolitionist pamphlets, petitioning, self-purchase, military service, flight, and revolting. That made this a reality. There was also a brief move towards equal rights by 1792. The entire Northwest Territory, Ohio, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Indiana, and Michigan, as well as 10 of the 15 states had opened up the vote to all men regardless, regardless of the color of their skin. But white northerners, native and foreign-born, resented the increasing free and growing black population. And when African Americans dared to live like free people, they were violently attacked. I'll open a parenthesis here and add, and still are, close parenthesis. 
Yeah, it's getting hot in here. In 1824 and 1831, white mobs attacked African-American enclaves in Providence, Rhode Island. When black people refused to show public deference to white people on October 18th, 1824, a group of black residents of the Hard Scrabble neighborhood refused to step off the sidewalk when a group of whites approached. Their insistence on their right to the sidewalk met an onslaught of violence. Dozens of angry whites destroyed nearly all the black-owned homes and businesses in hard scrabble. No one was punished and the black residents received no compensation for the loss of their property. Seven years later, when a black man stood on his porch with his gun, refusing to allow a group of white men to attack his home and family. Voice recognition keeps jumping in front of my screen here. A black man stood on his porch with his gun, refusing to allow a group of white men to attack his home and family. The violence in Providence became the deadliest the city had ever seen. The white mob ravaged the Snowtown neighborhood for four days until the governor finally decided that enough damage had been done and called in the state militia to quell the rioters. Again, no one was punished and black residents were not compensated. Instead, they were blamed for provoking the riot with their assertions of independence. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Does that sound familiar? Oh, this is why we have to have information. We have to know our history. That just sounds like uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, 2020. So what a, it's, it's the same thing. Just different names. We just don't know all the names of all the, the different people that were 
involved in those days. Take a little pause here and uh, refresh myself here. You know, these screens, whew, these computer and cell phone screens, oh, they can dry your eyes. With the pandemic and the virus so bad here in the state of California, we have to load up with a lot of uh, herbs and <laughs> vitamins and, <laughs> you know, throw everything <laughs> in the kitchen sink together to stay healthy so you're you you may end up with uh, dehydration or um, dry eyes, dry skin, you know, weather changing all the time, from hot to cold, cold to hot. So hold on just a minute. Now one twelve AM We've been reading for maybe what thirty almost thirty minutes. It's a good one. It's no way it's <laughs> no way to turn this one away. And to look away from this one is just too good. Something stood out, just, I guess, in the title. Knowing that the uh, southern, uh, the, yeah, the southern part of the United States has forever been slammed with um, having the worst, the worst of the worst. Ah. Uh, racial history and it is it was and it still is horrible but you know that let the like the article says it let the north off the hook and some of us who live there we know better we know better it it was not the same as the south but you know, it's um, something you have to experience. You have to see it for yourself. Black freedom rising and slowly increasing equal rights was what threatened most white northerners because Black emancipation meant that whiteness in 
and of itself was no longer a clear marker of freedom if black people were also free by the middle of the 1800s there was a backlash against the growing free black population in the north they no longer had the full protection of the law had the right to vote stolen from them and still do and could not sit on juries and serve in the militia. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the North, the Northern USA. Northerners also segregated schools, public transportation, and accommodations. Now, this hasn't said anything about all the whites and blacks that were working together behind the scenes. The so-called abolitionist movement, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and oh, so many others, black and white. So... We have to put things in perspective because (laughs) nobody here is uh, making all white people one way and all black people good and all white people bad. No, 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 no. There was um, so much history that it was never written that we are still trying to play catch up. That's what this is all about. We're still trying to play catch up. But some of us feel like, how are you gonna burn down people's properties for hundreds of years, murder them, rape and castrate them, and do as you damn well please even up till today, and hmm, let's see, why don't they just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, yeah, why should they be compensated, why reparations, I'm being facetious, but that's what you're going to hear when People nowadays are demanding reparations for hundreds, hundreds of years of losses and death and murder and just, oh, so many atrocities. And yeah, it's horrible that I have to say this. I make no apologies. I have nothing to apologize for. I make no excuses, like I said. (laughs) My family is a, you know, international, global family from all over the globe. But, you know, even I, as a child, even I could see the picture that is being presented 
right here. I live this. Okay, white people in nearly every northern state before the Civil War adopted measures to prohibit or restrict equal rights and the further migration of black people into their jurisdictions, especially the new Northern Territories and states of Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin, California, and Oregon. And all of this occurred before the Civil War and the end of slavery. And this doesn't say enough about the Native Americans, but at least they were able to claw back a fraction of what was stolen from them, just a fraction. African Americans, no. Mm -hmm. This this uh, war on African Americans is still going on in the streets right now today. In the last week in Ohio, uh, Mr. a young Mister Goodson Casey Goodson Jr. was gunned down. His family. No longer will have him. His family is saying he had sandwiches in his hand. And the police officers is saying he had brandished a gun and shot and killed him. But let me just open another parenthesis and say in Kenosha, Wisconsin, when that rat, what is his name? Rat and burger or whatever his name. <laughs> this this uh, kid that had the long rifle, he didn't even try to hide it. He had the rifle, killed people, and shot and injured people. And the militia told him, oh, we appreciate you. He was walking all around with this big old rifle in plain sight. All kind of police and militia just, just not a peep, no commotion. No shots fired at him. He would even left the state of Wisconsin. Left and had to be extradited back, put in jail, and now he's out free walking around after murdering and maiming people. Free! If he was black, he would have been in the cemetery. I mean, young Mr. Goodson is in the cemetery 
for holding a sandwich in his hand. You see? You see the difference? Well, anyways, this segment is almost out of time, and we'll we'll be able to uh, start another one, a part two on another segment. Because, you know, it's time out for sugarcoating history, sanitizing history, and misleading people, good people, from all all over the world, from all uh, ethnic groups, good people. I've never heard some of this. Have no clue why there's so many problems. Why people can't get along. What's what's the problem? When it, it really shouldn't be this way, but, you know, you have to look at the issues in order to fix them. And I'm happy and honored to do the, to do the, uh, do my part. Not all of it, and nobody can live that long to do all of it, but. I'm happy to do my part. Ah, it is no secret that white northerners responded. Is that where I left off? Well, it's 1.24 a.m., so I don't really know where I left off. The persistent myth of a post-revolutionary north embracing African Americans and protecting their rights has been delivered. Historians have long written about African descended people enslaved and free in the North before the Civil War. It is no secret that White Northerners responded to this population with cruelty and violence. Leonard Richards published his book on some of these events in 1970. And David Grimstead, G-R-I-M-S-T-E-D, Grimstead, published his book on mob violence before the Civil War in 1998. Yet, the majority of white historians have focused on the ways in which these mobs attacked white abolitionists, even though black lives were at the root of this violence. And it was black people who suffered the most from it. Okay, we only have uh, almost five minutes left. That suffering continues to be buried. 
For example, many historians note the 1837 murder of white abolitionist Elijah Lovejoy in Illinois. The mob attacking Lovejoy and his abolitionist press made it clear that they were not just angry about his views in publishing. They were motivated by racism as a white farmer. In the mob yelled out, quote, How would you like a D A M N E D N word going home with your daughter? Close quote. But no academic historian has investigated what happened to the African Americans in Alton, Illinois and the surrounding countryside, some of whom had been farming their own land since the early 1820s. This lack of interest and attention to this racist violence is deliberate, as Joanne Pope Malish made clear in 1998 in her book, Disowning Slavery. If you create a myth of an all-white North before the Civil War, it becomes much easier to ignore a history of violence against black people there. However, African Americans have long known that they have deep roots in all regions of the United States, as the African American Bishop Richard Allen wrote in 1829, affirming that black people belonged and will continue his writing in the next segment. And thank you for listening. have long known that they have deep roots in all regions of the United States. As the African-American Bishop Richard Allen wrote in 1829, affirming that black people belonged, quote, see the thousands of foreigners e-migrating to America every year and if there be ground sufficient for them to cultivate and bread for them to eat, why would they wish to send the first tillers of the land away? This land which we have watered with our tears and our blood 
is now our mother country. Close quote. Christy Clark Puchara and Annalisa Cox. The authors of the article. And it's located on online at Smithsonian mag.com well, that didn't take but a couple minutes to finish it <laughs> and we have a whole new segment so <laughs> We need, we need good, good music. Brian Courtney Wilson. What is he singing? He that began. He that begun a great work in you is faithful to perform it. God is faithful to perform it. He that hath begun a great work in you is faithful to perform it. Oh, God is faithful. He's going to sing this. Or not. Sometimes there are obstacles in the road that can leave you feeling low, and you don't know how to move forward. Sometimes there are turns you want to take, but the way gets hard to trace. Now you're wondering how did you get here But don't you give up until you see How God is ordering your steps So you can walk into your seas He that has begun A great work in you Is faithful to perform God is faithful to perform begun a great work in you is faithful to perform our God is
Amen, brother. He is doing a great work. Oh, Donald Lawrence. Sometimes the Pharaoh inside of you is the one that's holding you. Anger, bitterness, self-doubt. Don't you think it's time that you tell your Pharaoh to let you go? Your cry has been heard. Lincoln say, oh, no, Lord, tell Pharaoh to let them boys go. I'm on my Moses. Pharaoh's a coach of vulture. Impose a pose in the ski. I'm posted on mountaintops. Just picturing Dr. King. Working for the man, leaving dreams to just the ponder. I'm on trust the Lord that he gon' see no signs and knows wonders, boy.
course, that was Brian Courtney Wilson, and before him, Donald Lawrence and the Tri-City Singers. Brian will sing Inner City Blues. Marvin Gaye's song, Inner City Blues. Make me want to holler, throw up both my hands. Shots. Spend it all. 
Thank you for listening.